I'm Richard, and welcome to Esotork's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of April 15th, 2013. Join us as we talk with filmmaker Alina Shashevska about her work capturing a vanishing neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles' Skid Row. We'll also visit with the much-beloved Ruth Ann Dome, dispatcher for the bus company we work with, about her competing passions for fast cars and well-trained cowboys. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs on the max. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So he did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine of fabulous oddities like Brooke Hears, Dairy, Angela, Savvy, Bob, Big Boy, in Downey Forest, Long Cemetery. You can't eat the sunshine, but make a beeline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of April 15th, 2013. This week, we have interviews with Alina Shashevska, who's a filmmaker who's made several films in the downtown Skid Row area, uh, particularly at the intersection of East 5th Street and Los Angeles. And we're going to talk to her about these films and her next project, which is also in Skid Row, and... She's, she's great. We're also going to talk with Ruth Ann Dome. Ruth Ann Dome is the dispatcher for American Transportation Systems. We charter our buses. The buses for Esoturk are chartered from American Transportation Systems, and Ruth Ann Dome is one of my favorite people in the entire world. So, so that's uh, that. That's a, a, a overview of what we're going to do. And Kim, do you want, do you want to remind people about the Pishka? I will. I'll simply say, if you enjoy this show, which we hope that you do, you think about perhaps considering extending your kindness to donate to us a small consideration. 
which is to say, you can put some money in our digital tip jar and we'll spend it on gas exploring the great Southland and planning more fun people to interview. I'd also like to say Ruthann Dome is a character, so you'll enjoy this. And uh, Kim, Hmm. late last week I did an interview on KFWB Money Talk with Julie Rivette. Dashiell Hammett's granddaughter. Do you want to? We're, we're going to post the link to that to the podcast. They've 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 archived the interview. Do you want to tell everyone about it? Because I'm just super. I just thrilled with it. Oh, it was so much fun. Uh, Ron Kilgore, who has been supportive of the Lava Literary Salons in the past, was excited to hear about the Dashiell Hammett one that is happening at the end of April. And he made some time while he was filling in on the Money Talk show to sit down with Richard and uh, Julie and talk about Hammett's relationship to Hollywood and some of the interesting financial angles raised by his copyrights. But honestly, it wasn't purely a money-driven show. A lot of it was just about Hammett's really interesting career coming from uh, Pinkerton Opera as a man in his early 20s who probably broke strikes at the behest of robber barons, who eventually became one of the most active and visible and, and punished for it uh, communists in American letters. It was just a lot of fun talking about Julie's work with the archive and the salon that's coming up, and uh, it seemed like uh, really a, a lot of nice chemistry, and I hope we will be back on the air with Ron Kilgore, because he's uh, very simpatico with the old L.A. writer's world that we love. The old L.A. writer's world, which we talked about in the, on the air with Ron at length, happily, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to look at again this week, Kim, in a couple of days, because we're going to go see a play called Billy and Ray at the Falcon Theater in Burbank. This is a play that is uh, based, well... Okay, it's it's. I doubt it's based on my bus tour. It's the based bur- on the source material it's, it's the that same, you use for your bus tour. It's the same story, right? <laughs> right, it's, which is uh, well. Okay, so, allow you, so you're the one who th- wrote this. So, so last Saturday, Saturday last, no, just a few days ago, last Saturday, we gave my Jamie Kane bus tour, which is called Birth of Noir, which is a bus tour, basically the premise, the thesis of which, no ifs, ands, or buts, the thesis of which is the scripting of the Jamie Kane novel Double Indemnity by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler invented the genre film noir. And that's the thesis for this play. So I get to say, as I've been saying since I was 14 years old, the mind is universal. So we're very excited about this play. We're going to the... We're going to the... Falcon Theater? Yes. I haven't been to a play in... So we're going to the... the, 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 the this. Honey, what, what, what are you reaching for here? We're going to the play. What do you call a play? Uh, oh, we're going to the... The performance, the, because we go to the theater so often, I can't even remember what you call well, it. Well, we're going to the talkback uh, night, right, which is when the, the director and Gary Marshall... Is the, Gary Marshall's the director, Mike Bensavenga's the writer, and they're going to be answering questions, and... Um, I think it's going to be fun. It's a performance, Richard. I know we don't get out enough, and, and clearly your mind is telling me that you want me to take you out more often, and, and, I'll, and I'll try to do that. We do work really hard. I, I, I like plays about people that hate each other in rooms that can't leave. I, like, I cannot I like work small. with a man who's always wearing his hat. I'm convinced he's going to leave at any moment. All of this stuff comes out of uh, these wonderful memos that are, are held at the um, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library. Chandler had never written a screenplay before. Chandler didn't know how to play nice Hollywood style. Billy Wilder, 
as a punk in the best sense of the word and one of the best screenwriters in the business. And the two of them together were oil and water. They loathed each other. They needed each other. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's strong enough for a four-hour bus tour to have their conflicts. It's certainly going to make a great play. I cannot wait to see it. And I will just, in passing, I know we've, we've, we've dwelled on this long enough, but I, I cannot think about Raymond Chandler or Billy Wilder without thinking of, of Dorothy. Yeah. Dorothy. Dorothy Fisher. Who's the secretary. Was she in the room? On, she was there at other times, but she was Chandler's secretary who we got to know towards the end of her life. She worked with him at Paramount, and she talked to us a lot about the working relationship. I mean, he didn't like to work in the studio, and it's probably his bad relationships um, there, working on Double Indemnity, that led to, the, to actually picking up secretaries who he loved, like Dorothy, and taking them back to the house where poor Sissy would hide away in a back room listening to classical music, and they would uh, work in the, in the front room while getting up to lots of trouble. Kim, uh, you're going to bring us up to speed very quickly. The uh, Cultural Heritage Commission just last week heard arguments from the new uh, owners or leasers of the Grauman's Chinese. I guess it's the, the owners. I think the owners, yeah. They, they want to re- remodel Grauman's Chinese quickly, Bring us up to speed on what's happening with that, because because the 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 basis for our sanity as preservationists is the Cultural Heritage Commission, who are totally together. And you know, if you if you just casually glanced at the newspaper or curbed or LAist or something last week, you might have thought, oh my God, they're going to gut the interior of Grauman's Chinese Theater, which I know we're not supposed to call Grauman's anymore. We're supposed to call it Mans. No, we're not supposed to call it Mans. We're supposed to call it TCL, which I think stands for the Chinese Leases, but it doesn't. It's a television company in China. Um, they make cheap TVs. No, you're supposed to call it Grauman's Chinese because that's what the landmark is called. And if you read these articles, you may have thought, oh my goodness, they're going to gut the interior and they're going to put in a kind of miniature IMAX screening facility so that they can put a big sign up that says, you know, see the new premiere in IMAX. Unclear if this is going to happen. I mean, the proposals have been made. There's some support from some of the Hollywood organizations, I guess Hollywood Heritage and... um, LA Historic Theater are hoping that it'll be a um, agreeable alteration. I don't know, though. I mean, IMAX is a very gimmicky uh, technology. A lot of films, they'll, they'll just film a few scenes in IMAX, you know, because it's quite expensive. IMAX features tend to be short. They tend to be documentary in nature because they're so, you know, stagey. And, you know, you want to see a gimmicky film. This is the premiere, premiere location in the world. The, the number of great films that have premiered in that single theater, on that single screen, are uncountable and totally awesome. And I don't know, man. I'm, I'm a little concerned when I hear that, you know, some brand new-ish, you know, it dates back to like 1970 World's Fair, technology is going to replace just going to the movies and seeing a normal film on the big screen. So we're going to keep an eye on this one and hope for the best and uh, read some more documentation as it comes out. Kim, I, I think that uh, you you would have been very happy going to dinner with Dorothy Fisher, mm-hmm. Ray Chandler's secretary, and her boyfriend, Joe Sistrom, the executive producer <laughs> of Double Indemnity, and who would later become head of production at Paramount. You'd be very happy at dinner with Joe, because Joe was convinced television would never work because you can't charge people to watch it. He's a so, smart guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, Kim, I, I think the nature of going to the movies is, is fundamentally changing and 
Yeah, I know. And if you're going to have it remain the same in one place, maybe, I don't know, it should be the Chinese, the Grauman's Chinese. It just makes me think of Day of the Locust over and over again. The rabble, which is what I always think when I'm on that corner. The rabble. Some of them dressed as Spider-Man. All right, can we have some closely watched trains downtown that that I'm going to talk about this week? Last week, we mentioned reports that they want to combine the departments of building and safety and planning. And this week, there's a new announcement because of of a resolution passed in council that the city wants to create this uh, this new department. Let me get my notes here. The uh, EDD, which is the uh, Economic Development Department. And this is part of this announcement last week. They want to streamline the building process. This is also, more importantly, perhaps a response to the dissolution of the CRAs by Governor Brown throughout the entire state. So basically... Thank you, Governor Brown. Thank you. So basically, with the dissolution of CRAs, no cities know how to develop infrastructure or any kind of developments because they're used to just using the CRA. So they're gone. This autonomous taxing authority, which was the CRA, is gone, and the city wants to try and create half solutions to create half solutions to development and We'll just see what happens. It's I, I know this is sort of boring, but I think it's it's really interesting. It's only boring until they start tearing down buildings that we care about, and then it's really interesting. Right. And I will just say if you there are several articles written about it, everyone says, Well, some pieces are missing and, 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 and the pieces that are missing are that is that are that plural plural subjects. Uh, the CRA was two things. It was an autonomous taxing authority. And I guess maybe it's the same thing, is mm. that they could withhold tax revenue generated in their redevelopment areas. And and nothing the city does can recreate a CRA because they're put into existence through the state. Well, no one would have these problems if the CRAs had behaved properly. So here we are. So, and no one alive remembers how to actually develop without your hand being held by Big Brother. So so we'll just we'll we'll, we'll keep posted on that and, and we'll look forward to this magic nonprofit which is going to be the, the Afikomen, the, the missing piece of matzah, which is gonna solve the, <laughs> the, the, the city's problems and uh we'll we'll I, I, I like looking for the Afikomen. So we'll 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 keep you posted on that. That was that was my favorite uh, that was my favorite holiday. Kim we've got uh last week one more closely watched train. You skipped one. Oh, we're yeah, so busy the, talking the, the about Merce, unhappy theater things. Okay, That's but let me let me finish up Pershing right. Square Camp. Yes, yeah, the Merced Theater. It's very short. Has a new tenant. The Merced Theater is just south of Pico House on Main Street. It's the last building before you get to the bridge. Locked up tight for decades, it seems like. Uh, so the city's television station. Yeah, that produces those incredibly entertaining city council (laughs) shows. So so it looks like the Merced Theater is basically going to become a uh, fiber optic cable hub and server bank, which seems a strange use for one of the oldest brick buildings in Los Angeles. But there you go. I was rooting for the L.A. Opera Company. Oh. Who's currently out uh, at Silesian High in Boyle Heights? I was I was hoping they 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 would get it, but I guess they didn't. We'll still root for them. Kim, last week I went to a Pershing Square advisory board meeting. Finally, after much anticipation, 
and I'm happy to say that these meetings are as boring as they were the last time I went four years ago. Uh, I'm going to keep going back. It seems that in recently the Pershing Square Advisory Board, which as an advisory board has absolutely no power or say it, just that it, it it produces opinions and provides direction and like a neighborhood council. Le- uh, I yes, I suppose. With, I think with it, even less authority. Perhaps. Well, it's it, the, the advisory board simply exists to advise the people that run Pershing Square. Luis Capone is is that person, and just to give some direction. So I showed up, and it seems like they've changed their bylaws a little bit to adjust for their their new reinvention of themselves, which I guess centered around. Uh, the the proposed money that AEG was going to give them. Right, $700,000. So suddenly this moribund group changes its bylaws and um, it, it, they, they break away from the foundation that all the other city parks participate in and they're starting their own nonprofit under the umbrella of community partners. Um, now come to find out, you know, it, the AEG deal is dead. There's actually no $700,000. I don't know if this is of, going to continue. Of, of that seven hundred thousand, only five percent of it was going to be earmarked for design. So, they, but it's they, interesting that um, at the time that they were making these changes and starting their new nonprofit, they put the wrong dates for their meetings on their website, and they also took their website down for quite a while. I don't know, man. I mean, the Brown Act. This stuff should be public. Let's also talk about the fact that the only way to get um, the only way to get the agenda for the forthcoming meeting is to go to Pershing Square and look at a taped piece of paper on a window, which goes up the afternoon of the Friday before the meeting. It is not available online anywhere. The only way to see the minutes is to take a blurry picture with your um, smartphone at the meeting that you attend if you actually can figure out the correct date, because those two are not published online, and I believe they are destroyed after one month. I mean, uh, why? I, I, why? I don't know if they're destroyed. I think Didn't they, they say that to you. About they, they it, under the you only need to keep them for a very finite period of time, and by finite period, I mean sixty to ninety days. Okay, well, if they were published online, people could just copy the PDFs and make them available. So that's what we've started to do, Richard. You took some smart. I'm going to teach you how to take a, a good smartphone photo of an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. We're going to practice at home. Don't, don't need to do that. I'm just, I, I know I'm just how teasing, to do sweetie. that. I know it was a rush and. You know, this stuff is important because they're talking about doing things like having closed meetings to talk about the problem of the homeless. The problem of the homeless. Is there something that you need to have a closed meeting to talk about? Well, they, they are an advisory board, Kim. They don't actually have any, any power. But, but yes, uh, the Pershing Square Advisory Board is, is a closely watched train because, because Pershing Square contains all the problems and challenges around downtown. And if, if and you can, and, and then some, and if you can address some of the fundamental challenges to positive public space downtown in Pershing Square, you can you can save downtown, and you can uh, rule the world. I don't think you could rule the world, but you 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 would actually accomplish what the business lobbies downtown would like to do, except they wouldn't have control of it, which is why they don't want to do it the, that the, way. The, the problem with making Pershing Square habitable, which it was up until. You know, the early 1950s under some stretch of the term habitable, and certainly up through the 40s, is that when it's habitable, it attracts people who behave in ways that cannot be controlled. Because citizens are free. They have free will. And sometimes they do things that are perhaps antisocial. There are laws, you know. So, Kim, what we want to remember about Pershing Court Advisory Board, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on. What we want to remember is you sit in this meeting. It's so boring. It hasn't gotten you, any less boring. You sit in this meeting. And but you're you re- not allowed to sit at the table anymore. Kim. Okay. 
That's true. You sit at this meeting and you realize there's so much information the city of Los Angeles is publishing, like the minutes we talked about, like the agenda, which is which is not accessible to the general public on the internet or in a machine-readable format. If if only the city of Los Angeles would start publishing documents about the commission that oversees Quimby funds, about the commit about the Parks Commission in general, about the Pershing Square Advisory Board, about City Hall, about City Council meetings. If machine-readable documents were produced, people could source and use algorithms to figure out what's going on and track what's important, and citizens could actually start to share information. Small, diverse groups of informed individuals with common concerns and shared goals could start to communicate, and that is the very definition of the dissemination of information, which is another way to say that's how you affect positive public change in the world. So by tweeting, by blogging, and on the other side of the coin, by the city producing machine-readable documentation, you actually can affect a better world. And I promise you, if you go to any city meeting and start talking about machine-readable formats, people roll their eyes and say things like, I don't get computers, I don't know. Well, the city of San Diego just had one one very driven civic leader who um, came up with a new transparency policy, and they're trying to publish a lot of documentation. It's not a popular thing to do, because when you do it, suddenly the gadflies have a lot more power to actually understand what's going on. And, you know, gadflies are not the most popular people to politicians, to the people who make these decisions. It's just what it is. Right. It's, it's, it's the nature of... It's the very definition of power. The people in power have the ability to allocate resources, and information about the allocation or the reallocation of resources is exactly what I'm talking about. So, public policy 101, civics, high school civics 101 is over. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about the wonderful article in Los, the, the April issue of Los Angeles Magazine about the Finch Tregoff murder. And, and that, that you actually read it cover to cover. You actually, actually sat in the car on our drive home. It was terrific. I mean, that's a case. There's a lot of stuff that's been written about the case going back to the 50s when it happened. It's like the classic suburban wife murder. Um, successful doctor, had a mistress who worked with him in the office, and the two of them plotted the killing of his socialite wife, and, and, it, and it was a very messy murder, and they nearly killed the au pair. I mean, it was just... It was grisly and gruesome, and there was a bougainvillea involved that, that, that Miss Tregoff hid behind, and they were both rather attractive and glamorous defendants. Uh, they did kill the wife. So, exciting stuff. Um, but usually when it's written about, there isn't this kind of wonderful pullback where you get the sense of place of what West Covina was in the 50s, which was just this, just the grandeur of the uh, upper middle class San Gabriel Valley lifestyle, the country club life is delightful piece by by uh, steve McEwen. so enjoyed that very much glad it's out there and it it triggered you richard to go and look at some of okay. yes yeah. everyone everyone needs to listen yeah i'm married to a true crime writer i am not a true crime person i love my wife when we started dating i wrote her a blogging engine just to kickstart the 1947 project very proud of all the history blogs i totally support her i'm not a true crime guy just just in, in putting together the notes to do the introduction for this podcast, I just found this blog written uh, put together by a guy named Gary Kleiser. The blog is called The Many Faces of Carol Trigoff Papa, and it's the greatest 
true crime blog I've ever read in my entire life. And I, I don't read many of them, but it's really good, and it's it's peppered with. Uh, well, the the reason he wrote it is his parents grew up in back of Carol Trigoff. And at the time, when they first moved in and they were neighbors, there were no fences built yet. So they would see Dr. Finch just walk through their backyard into With Carol's shirt house. shirt off and stuff. Well, his shirt was on. He would yeah. take his shirt off. I'm, I'm sure they could see him take his shirt off. But, but the point is this blog is peppered with really witty observations. You know, he's, he's tracked down Carol's husband, uh, James Papa. The bodybuilder. Right. She, she, he's tracked down the sister-in-law, the sister of James Papa, Carol Trigoff, Papa's first husband, and said, and found her. And oh, they probably found him. I mean, that's okay. the thing that happens when you blog about true okay. crime, is can, people find you. Okay, let me finish. So, so he, found, he found the sister, and the sister says, yeah, I was, in, I was in Covina two years ago at a supermarket, and I saw Carol Trigoff, and she's earned every gray hair on her head. <laughs> It's the personal stuff that brings it alive. I know. Fantastic piece. Well worth reading. And um, not online, but there is a great Q&A with the author if you want to get a little more uh, in-depth experience there. Kim, we've got, uh, we've got what we, let's uh, just quickly call out some, some events coming up before we get into the interviews. We've got the Crime Lab. Sure. Um, we've got, actually, we just put a new crime lab on, on the calendar for July 14th, so we'll link to that as well. But the, the next crime lab is April 21st with Nick Guskos, and it's a terrific insight into basic tools of uh, forensic science investigation from a new textbook that he's written. It's going to be some very graphic material. Um, that's the first half. Part two is talking about a much more intellectual form of um, investigation, how you go um, into the into the um, prison system and deal with very high-ranking gang members and try to get them to uh, pull away from their gang affiliations and give states evidence. So very uh, seldom explored with the general public material, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We are filling up for that, so definitely check out the link if you are inclined. And all these Crime Lab events that we do at Cal State LA are fundraisers for the criminalistics graduate students so that they can buy more DNA tests and other fun things to learn how to, you know, Figure it out if you commit a murder in the future. Kim, our, our literary salon is coming up at the end of this month, Saturday, April 27. We talked about my interview with Julie late last week on KFWB, so that will just serve as a, as a bookmark for that. Please come. It's going to be a great event. Kim, there is no monthly Sunday Lava Salon this month right. for the month of April. The last Sunday of the month is normally when we do our free salon, which we've, we've restarted on Broadway at uh, La Noce de Figaro. De Figaro, thank you, dear. I'm sorry. It's, it's the mixture of the French and, and the Italian. But we can't because uh, Fiesta Broadway is a huge event, and, and in the past we tried to do uh, Lava Salons at Clifton's during Fiesta Broadway, and people just couldn't get into the neighborhood. So uh, we don't want to change locations. We're going to take a month off, but I promise you, May is going to be a doozy. So look out for that. All right, let's. We're going to we're going to segue into our interviews. So uh, very quick, we're going to we're going to interview Ruth Ann first, and then we'll interview Alina. So very quickly, uh, two or three things I know about Alina Shashevska. Alina's uh, Alina's film about the King Eddie about the smoking cage in the old King Eddie saloon is called Last One Left, 
the last Skid Row bar in Los Angeles and its patrons, A Few Brief Life Stories. And she produced that in 2010. She concurrently filmed, edited, and produced and released uh, her feature-length documentary, Songs from the Nickel, which is a slightly enlarged footprint around East 5th Street in Los Angeles. The interviewing residents of the Hotel Baltimore across from the King Edward Hotel. The King Eddie Saloon sits in the corner ground floor of the King Edward Hotel. Uh, the Bar- Hotel Barclay and well, I think there are one or two other uh, SROs. No, those are the, the, those are the primary SROs. <laughs> the very close to each other right. and the King Eddie is in the midst of all that. So, changed so, a lot since then. Okay, but we'll get into that in the interview. So we'll we'll she'll be our our second interview. Our first interview we'll go straight into now with Ruth Ann Dome. Uh, some some things you should know about Ruth Ann besides the fact that she's she's my favorite person in the world. Uh, she has two great grandchildren and she likes cowboys. And I think everyone's understanding of Ruth Ann's aesthetics for men and recreation will be deepened once you you finish listening to our interview with her. So let's take it away. Alina, I want to I want to welcome you. Uh, I, I want to thank you for joining us. We're going to interview you now for our podcast, and I'd love it. We're we're here at the Los Angeles Athletic Club, having a cup of coffee and a ginger ale. And I was hoping you could introduce yourself and tell us about your work as a filmmaker downtown. Thanks. So I've been working downtown pretty much since uh, 2006. The first film that I made is also my first feature-length documentary film. Um, It's called Songs from the Nickel. It's it's a film that portrays in an intimate way inhabitants of old hotels in the Skid Row area. And through their eyes, we also witness some changes that have been happening in downtown uh, over the past, um, let's say, 10 years or so. As I was shooting the film, I also lived in one of the hotels for for a long time. I lived there for one and a half years in the King Edward Hotel that now has um, has changed. It's no longer a cash-based hotel like it used to be when I lived there, but now you have to actually sign leases and, and proof of income and, and all these kinds of things. But back then you could just uh, you could just rent a room if there was one available for $300 cash, and, and that was that. No No check whatsoever. So I was I was living there, and uh, I became friends with uh, different people that were my neighbors or who I met on the streets, and started filming. And it was a, it was a long process. I wasn't sure in the beginning what really was going to come out of it. Uh, I just found the area really fascinating, and the people really fascinating. But it kept evolving and just growing longer and longer and longer until it eventually ended up a feature-length film that I finished in 2010. So. And and the title of this film is Songs from the Nickel. And this is this is your documentary about inhabitants of the King Edward Hotel. And then it's not exclusively the King Edward, it's a couple of hotels in the downtown area, yeah. But but that's the one that I stayed in. And you you make you, you filmed and, and, and edited at the same time another film almost simultaneously specifically about the King Eddie Saloon. Do you quickly want to tell us the title of that film and a little bit about it? And these are two really important snapshots of the intersection of East Fifth Street and Los Angeles, which 
as we sit here now in uh, April 2013, that, that world does not exist anymore. So God bless you for having taken those snapshots. Yeah, the other film, well, thanks. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, I guess um, there is a tendency with, with a lot of filmmakers to sort of feel like things are about to disappear and then you feel like you want to archive them in some way. So I'm sure I'm not the only one doing this. But anyway, the other film is called Last One Left, and it's a very, very simple film. It's really just a portrait of uh, regular uh, customers of the King Eddie Saloon, the bar that's right downstairs in the hotel. And um, there used to be a little room in the back that was the smoking room. People could go and smoke cigarettes there, and uh, it had a very, very strange character. It was it had something of a confession booth to it. You you would walk in there, and at that time I used to still smoke, and I would walk in there, and I'd have these really intense conversations with people, that's, what, that's where really intense conversations would happen. They tended to have that confessional character. So I wanted to, to just make a film about that. And so pretty much that's all it is. It's just a couple of people sitting there one by one and telling a little bit of their story while smoking a cigarette. Yes, that bar has changed. Um, the hotel has changed. A lot of some of the people are still there. Some are not there. Some have disappeared. Some are dead. Um, but yeah, I guess they live on in this archive. <laughs> let's um, let's ask my favorite question: What's next? Because you've been away. You've been in Berlin for about six months. You've been regrouping, and you're back now. And I, I think in the course of you explaining what's next, we can also get dig a little bit more and understand more about your passions, your concerns, and your interests for, for Skid Row. Yeah, then there's... Um in the, in the meantime, I made also another film that was for that was for uh, for German television. I finished that last year. That's a, another part of downtown. Um, sort of talks about the a little alley in the in the toy district. But there's a big project that I've been thinking about for a really really long time, and um, that's what I really want to tackle now. It's the the title of it is Game Girls, and it will tell the story of women in downtown LA, specifically women trying to escape their past in, on, off Skid Row in some way. So um, a story of personal transformation, a story of recovery, um, and a story of the shadow world of the drug game. Um, so I've been thinking about this, this, this idea for a really long time, and it always seemed really, really difficult, but really, really important. And I went back to Europe to um, raise interest for the project there and try to find uh, potential funders and, and producers, which... Which so, so I've been doing that, and now I I just I, I have to really start the process of uh, setting up setting up the film, and it's going to be a complicated process because um, the way it's going to be the way this film will be made is very very different than all the films that I've made before. It's going to be a film that's a collaboration, so. I'm not going to be working in this kind of direct cinema mode exclusively. I'm going to be really writing with the women, writing with the protagonists in a sort of workshop setting that will be set up and that will be happening over the course of a year. And through that, really getting to much deeper level of what their experience is like, what they're going through, what their inner fears, hopes, fantasies are, what, um, what are the things that are really invisible and how can you make them visible what are the things that are invisible for outsiders 
what, but of course, these are things that the women themselves see all the time. So, so my attempt is to make this visible through, through that collaboration, through that workshop structure. Yeah, so, so that's what I'm working on, setting, setting this up, and I'm, I'll be looking for partners um, in that, in the downtown area to do this with as well. Good. That w- wow, this is going to be fantastic. It's going to be fantastic. So let's, let's take a deep breath. Let's, let's try and we didn't, I'm just throwing this out here. We didn't talk about this before. Let's try and name some of the salient aspects of Skid Row that interest, that, 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 that are of interest to you. You've just done a wonderful job talking about women and, and their, their, their being a homeless woman in downtown Los Angeles, which is something that has not been recognized as a social concern until about maybe 20 years ago. Historically, this was not a real something uh, people that was on social public policy, social workers' radars. Let's, if you could just name some big words with capital letters or big ideas that, that sort of cluster around Skid Row and draw your attention to it as a filmmaker. Big words. I feel like I'm more of a person of small words and, and kind of delicate uh, uh, approaches. Then, then let's hear these small words. Yeah. I just feel that uh, Skid Row is a really, really complicated place, and the deeper you go into it, the more complicated it seems. Um, the more layers you find, and the more you 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 kind of grapple with how how can you what can you even do with this. Clearly, um, the issue of um, mental health is is a huge one in in that area, and to me, that's very very interesting on on a lot of different levels because the, the concept of mental illness in a in in itself is a very very complicated thing. It's uh, completely unclear um, to what degree. I mean, it's both biological and uh, psychological. It's both body, it's mind, it's circumstance, it's system, then it's diagnosis. It's cultural, completely different uh, um, perceptions of what what that is in, in different cultures. So all of these things are are really really interesting and and also the way historically perception of mental health mountain illness has changed in the US and how different groups different social groups different classes of people tend to be um, diagnosed with completely different disorders yeah i've been talking about this for a long time i guess that that is a that is a big topic um. that was fantastic that was that was absolutely fantastic yeah no Skid Row, that was, we're done. You did it. Congratulations. No, no, we're, we're, we're done. You've, this is a wonderful interview. Skid Row is incredibly complicated. And, and, and the more you look, the more complicated it gets. I want to thank you. Uh, if people will we'll put your website up on the page associated with this podcast so people can contact you. We're here. We're going to wrap this up. It's, if there's one thing, two things you want people to know about what you're doing, how they can help you, or just just a, a thought you want to put out there about the work you're about to embark on, let's let's hear it. Well, I mm, I guess I'm not I guess I'm not sure. Well, you can always contact me. 
just send me an email if you're interested in any way and I'll be happy to talk to you and um, yeah if you have any ideas regarding regarding setting up um, a workshop project such as I'm talking about with women in downtown Skid Row and you would like to help with this then uh, yes absolutely do contact me perfect Alina thank you so much I look forward to uh, Kim and I look forward to seeing you a lot more now that you're back we missed you it's good it's good to have you back thank you so much Hi, my name is Jerry Taft. I'm here at the Los Angeles Athletic Club in downtown Los Angeles. And you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Ruthann, I want to thank you for joining us for our podcast. We're here at a nice little uh, cantina in Long Beach. Ruthann, just to get started so everyone understands, you're one of my favorite people in the entire world. So I just, just, just prefacing the podcast with that. Please, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experience uh, in, in the coach class bus world because you, you are the person that keeps our company, Esotork, running, and, and you're the only reason I'm not in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're not there because I don't want to come and visit you there, but thank you for inviting me to this. I really appreciate it. And my experience in the bus business is I've been in it 30 years, approximately, doing a little bit of on both sides with the tour industry and also on the charter bus side. I worked for a company um, for six years that, that was the tour industry that I did motor coaches throughout the United States for like 100 coaches a week on the highway. Had to keep all of that in line. And then fortunately about five years ago when most of the people want all brand new coaches and stuff, there was a company with Mack Trucks was getting into the industry of building uh, motor coaches. So they called me and had an interview with me and came to me to see what they needed necessary to build their coaches. So I gave them insights of what all of our tour guides and all of our tour agents and so forth to make them successful. I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you because I'm not sure people really process what you just said. Mac, Mac Truck called you for feedback on how to build a better coach class bus. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. Mac Truck called you for feedback on how to build a better coach class bus. They wanted to get into coaches. So other than just trucks, they decided that the buses were doing very well on the highway because they see so many. So they contacted me since I had a fantastic background, which I'm very proud of, that I've done. And we continued from there. So they've built a nice piece of equipment, and now they're into entertainer coaches and so forth. So they use the chassis on them for what they do. But it's a great industry, and I love doing what I do, and that's why I don't want to retire. So I'll probably live forever. <laughs> well, let's let's so let's let's get to your let's get to your life. So you, let, just quickly to bring everyone up to speed, you are the person at American Transportation Systems that keeps track of. You had fifty orders two days ago. Can you? Since since January, we've been running fifty and sixty orders a day of the contracts and so forth that we've had because um, we try to give people quality service and do the best we can and we're open 24-7. We answer our phones all the time. We don't have an answering service or anything, so we are there to service the industry. So so could you just quickly, I think people just want a quick snapshot of your 
the, the algorithm you use to get all the buses into all the slots? And could you talk about, you know, you have to see that the driver doesn't like to drive in the morning because they have to pick his kid up at school maybe, or, you know, you've got to farm the bus out and make all, all the little pieces you have to match to make all these things come together and get these 50 orders out in a day. It's really difficult sometimes because you've got to watch the driver's hours because they can only drive so many hours a day, be on duty, so therefore you have to watch all of that. You have to see where they drop to see if they can pick up the next order if they haven't a lot of time or so forth. So sometimes you're there more than 14, 15 hours a day in the office trying to do all this, but we get it accomplished and we farm out to people that we feel are responsible as we are to do the job. So, But I think of the drivers also because um, of their hours on duty and so forth. So. It's, it's all about the drivers, correct? Correct. Drivers are make our company. We can sell all day long, but our drivers what make our company. Ruthann, you're, you're very good to the drivers. I, I love that about you. Ruthann, let's, let's start to talk about your life outside of getting 50 orders out the door. Let's talk about the vehicles in your life. You have a limousine. You have a motorhome. You have a completely, totally bitching black convertible. It's a Camaro. And and you have a truck. So why don't you just walk us through your vehicles and what you use them for on on your your weekends? Um, I have a new 2012 convertible, which is fun um, to chase around cowboys, I guess. But um, (laughs) I have a truck when I go to the country bars and go out country dancing. Uh, My motorhome, I go camping and take a lot of friends with me. Uh, What else do I have? (laughs) A limousine that I do private parties and stuff on because I just do my take my friends out to have fun and so forth because it's too competitive in the industry so I just use mine for my friends when they want to have fun and go out drinking so they don't get DUIs and so forth so otherwise I'm just a party animal <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that so I, I think that's a really nice introduction to your your last weekend I remember um, I talked to you about two weeks ago when you were getting ready to go to Texas and, and this is a, a trip that you make three or four times a year. So could you give us a little, a little background on this, this quarterly trip you take with your three other girlfriends? And I, I guess also the size of the group changes, too. It's not always a fixed. Yep. Bring, bring us up to speed on all this. Okay. There's probably about 14 people that we all hang around together. Um, I met my best girlfriend, and she worked for a bus company in Florida. I talked her into moving to a bus company in Texas that were friends of mine. And we've been like sisters for 25 years. So every once in a while we do a road trip. And our road trips get a little bit wild at times. And they begin to call us Thelma and Louise. So Thelma and Louise and two of their partners took a trip last weekend. So we had Thelma and Louise plus two. We all wore red and white shirts and red ball caps and a red and white convertible. So we were having fun. So much fun that at 3 o'clock in the morning, around 3 or 3.30, our security guard knocked on our door, surprising to see that there were women between 50 and whatever age. (laughs) They weren't teenagers in the room, and he was really shocked because he had to tell us to be quiet. (laughs) Can can I ask you to share with us what you were wearing when security came to your room? Sure, we were all wearing Disney pajamas. Disney would love us if they'd have seen us dressed up like that. Ruthann, I, I love you so much. <laughs> we had 10 hours sleep the whole weekend we were there. I was there on Thursday, and from Thursday till Monday morning, I got home at 2.30 in the morning and had to catch a flight at 6, and I made my flight, and I went directly to work. So we're party animals. All four of us girls are. <laughs> okay, so let me, let, me, let me get this straight. 
you you like cowboy hats, you like cowboy boots, and you like cowboys. Wrangler jeans. Had to be Wrangler jeans. <laughs> it's not Wrangler jeans. They're not in. <laughs> are, are there any cowboys in your life at the moment? Definitely. I have a new one. He's from Phoenix. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna look for updates on that. Um, (laughs) 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 Before we wrap this up, um, why don't you give us an update? You're you're a great grandmother too, in addition to all these things. So why don't you give us just a a quick roll call of your extended family, which I know you're very proud of, and and some of them are planning to visit you soon too. Right. My I had two sons. Uh, unfortunately, I lost one son, but I have five grandchildren, and I'm also a great grandmother. I just had a great granddaughter in November and a great grandson in January. So I'm a very proud grandmother and mother and great grandmother. So everybody has all the energy that I have and can take care of all these kids. It's fun. <laughs> do, do you do you have a philosophy on life you'd like to share with us before we go? Sure. All you got to do is party and work hard, and you know you work hard, but you party harder. So that's philosophy in life, and I'm going to live forever. I'm going to do this for a long time. Ruthann, God bless you. I just I don't know what I'd do without you, and happily I I, I don't have to worry about that. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to be there, and I love you guys too. Ruthann, I want to I want to thank you for letting us interview you, and we'll. Uh, what what's tell us what what bar we should all go to the best cowboy bar in los angeles county tell us tell us where we should go oh cowboy country naturally it's on south street in long beach five doors so that if i get drunk i can walk back and sleep in my motor home <laughs> ruthann i love you i really do god bless you it's been a wonderful interview and um i think we're gonna we're gonna we'll finish your beers and uh god bless you Thank you. (laughs) Hi, this is Jessica Halata. We're at Occidental College Library. You're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of April 15th, 2013. Our two guests this week were filmmaker Alina Shashevska and our beloved dispatcher for our bus, for the bus company we charter our tours for, Ruth Ann Dome. Kim, if people want to get in touch with us, how can they do that? Because we certainly want to hear from you. Well, the simplest way always is to go to esoturic.com and just use the contact link. But if you're really attached to your email client, you can't eat the sunshine at gmail.com works just as well. And we love to hear from you. So, so let's, let's wrap up uh, just a quick call out to upcoming events. This coming Saturday, Crawling Down Coanga, Tom Waits' Los Angeles, a bus tour with David Smay. 
a once-a-year bus adventure, always around this time of year. We bring David down from San Francisco to bring his terrific 33 and a third book on swordfish trombones to life. And uh, I help him a little with this tour because I was, of course, a Zoetrope Studios intern during the time that Tom Waits was working on the soundtrack for One from the Heart across the street from my junior high school. And I've got a few wacky stories about that. It's a tour of uh, from uh, the Nickel downtown Los Angeles' Skid Row through West Hollywood, which has much changed since Waits lived at the Tropicana, out to Cantor's, and then back through the Echo Park area where he lived when he was signing some very ill-advised contracts. Uh, It's a fun uh, love story, really, about his life up through about 1980 and how true love changed him enormously. Uh, Tom Waits fans always enjoy it a lot, as do people who are just uh, passionate about that 1970s-era Los Angeles. Kim, I'm going to interrupt this roll call to just, mm-hmm. you know, when we do this Waits tour every year, it just, it's so, I remember going to Duke's growing up because I understood Duke's was the coffee shop and it is is a coffee shop that was in the no, tropics. it's gone. It oh, Duke's closed? Okay. Well, when I was growing up, Duke's was still around and it was it was understood to be an important place and I would go and it's just... You cannot understand how beat to shit what is now West Hollywood was. And, you know, you just, you, you can't, it's hard to process because you were young and it's just what it was, which is fine. But, but you, you, you grow up and you start to think about it and it really makes sense that unincorporated parts of Los Angeles County that are surrounded by Hollywood and West Los Angeles, which are parts of the city of Los Angeles, it really makes sense that these, that these parts of town were really run down because you know, they were unincorporated Los Angeles and there just was not a municipality looking after it. And I think, I think once I started to think about that, that just, it it just sort of gets easier to, to line up, you know, your memories of Beverly Boulevard in, in 19, you know, in 1976 and, and what it is today and how it got there. It's funny because as you were saying that, I just suddenly flashed on this breakfast um, I used to live in West Hollywood as a, a young kid, hence the internship at Zoetrope. And there was this little Japanese shack just to the east of the Okie Dog on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. And you could go to this place and they would give you um, a bowl of very soft white rice. And on top of the white rice was the mixed vegetable frozen pack with you know the little cubes of carrot and, and corn and um, peas, uh, green beans. And on top of that was some really nice salty teriyaki and a fried egg. And it was just the most amazing thing. And it was so cheap and so great. And I remember going down there with my mom some days before school. You can't do anything like that anymore. Just that wonderful, greasy, lo-fi garbage that used to be West Hollywood. It's all gone. Kim, our, our literary salon, high, highly anticipated, much talked about. Oh, yeah, coming. we're going to have bowls of rice with uh, <laughs> free vegetables fried in butter. It's going to be great. No. No, we're, 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 we're not. We're actually going to have a, a carving station. Uh, yeah, for, 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 the, for the dinner for that, for the, for the literary salon on, on Saturday, April 27th. It's going to be horseradish cream, baby. Kim, looking ahead to May, because May is just around the corner. More food. Saturday, May 4th. Blood and Dumplings. My crime bus tour of the San Gabriel Valley. We don't get as far as West Covina and Finch Trigoff, but we get into some truly unhinged territory. Um, I think that the craziest people in the world uh, settled in 
El Monte and vicinity. So we've got, you know, American Nazi Party people. We've got um, the Lion Farm. We've got uh, James Elroy's mother's murder, which was so influential on uh, his psychic development and modern noir writing. And uh, a lot of really offbeat, weird crimes. My favorite is probably the man from Mars Bandit, but you'll just have to get on the bus to learn more about him. Thank you, Kim. It 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 really is. It's it's a great tour, and it's a completely unhinged look at crazy motherfuckers in San Gabriel Valley. So please get on that bus May, Saturday, May eighteenth. It's a slow month for us. Well, th- there's Mother's Day, and there's um. Be kind to your frog. Oh, day. Mother's Day and and Labor Day. Yeah, we just don't do holidays. No, Memorial Day, La- Labor Day, M- Mother's Day, whichever holidays in May. It's, it's Memorial Day because we're going to do the tour at Savannah Cemetery. Right. So we'll be getting for that on Memorial the Day Monday. The memorial, but but because there's a three day weekend at the end of May and Mother's Day falls in the middle. Historically, we just don't schedule tours for these weekends. So so May is a light is a light month. So if you want to get on the bus in May. Blood and Dumplings, May 4, or my Raymond Chandler bus tour, May 18. And that, that too, starts from the Los Angeles Athletic Club, which is the location for our literary salon uh, at the end of this month. And the Chandler tour is just absolutely fantastic. And I, I think, once again, we're going to be graced with the Oviat historian Mark Chevalier to give us a lot of really great background information on my favorite Raymond Chandler villain, James Oviatt, who who's given the uh, Darius Kingsley right. Dar- he's given the fictional name of Darius Kingsley in the novel *Laging in the Lake*. But he's absolutely Oviatt, and this is the only tour of all of our tours where we go to Scoops Gelato and have noir-themed frozen treats, and no one else can do that on a bus. Well, I guess they could, but they don't. They they don't, Kim. So I want to thank everyone for listening. I want everyone to stay tuned, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Hermina between us.